The Battle for the Bible by Harold Linzel The Foreword There is a pressing need for Dr. Linzel's book, The Battle for the Bible, in the burgeoning evangelical branch of Protestantism. If evangelicalism bids to take over the historic mainline leadership of 19th century Protestantism, as Dr. Martin Marty suggests, this question of biblical inerrancy must be settled. It is time for an evangelical historian to set forth the problem. As evangelicalism grows, it becomes more and more threatened with incipient division. The perplexing question of the inspiration of Scripture is endangering the unity of the evangelical movement. Two prominent views are emerging. The adherents of both appeal to the Bible to support their position. The first view considers all of Scripture to be inspired and true, including the historical, geographical, and scientific teaching. The second view holds that only the Bible teaching on salvation history and doctrine is true. The Bible is authoritative for faith and practice only. Some who adopt the second view would say that the Bible is plenarily inspired, but that God intended the writers to use their limited knowledge, which is erroneous, in making non-revelatory statements. In evaluating this important theological difference, Dr. Linzel has written with accuracy, candor, and imminent fairness. Although he quotes individuals, he is not attacking personalities, but is attempting to set forth the different viewpoints. The time has come to warn evangelicals of the incipient danger to both faith and practice, which comes from abandoning the essentially orthodox view of Scripture. Dr. Linzel and I have both been involved in many controversies over biblical inerrancy during the last several decades. In other situations, the issue has been raised in debate. All of these witness to the increasing importance of the topic and the need for a definitive word. In the 1920s, while I was a writer for the magazine Christian Faith and Life, edited by Dr. Harold Paul Sloan, we were dealing with these problems in the Methodist Church. In the late 20s, the issue of inerrancy was seen in the fundamentalist, modernist controversy in the Presbyterian Church, USA, over the Auburn Affirmation and was expressed in the ultimate division of Princeton Theological Seminary in 1920. That year, a group of us students at Princeton followed Dr. J. Gresham Mason and Dr. Robert Dick Wilson, Dr. Oswald T. Alice, Dr. Cornelius Van Til, and Dr. Ned Stonehouse to found Westminster Theological Seminary. In 1942, the effects of the repudiation of the authority of Scripture in the Protestant denominations in the Federal Council of Churches caused us to establish the National Association of Evangelicals in St. Louis. The NAE emphasized a return to biblical authority, authenticity, and truthfulness and to the theological position derived from inerrant scripture. In the early years of the NAE, many of us pastors in the old line denominations repudiated our denominational membership in the federal council and aligned ourselves with the National Association of Evangelicals. During the summers of 1944 and 1945, I convened a group of theologians at Monument Point, Massachusetts, to discuss the need for the writing of a new evangelical literature based upon evangelical principles 
and, in particular, upon inerrant scripture. Although the evangelical movement had begun to grow, it had to depend upon literature of a previous generation. Those two conferences brought evangelical scholars into contact with each other. In 1947, Dr. Charles E. Fuller invited me to join him in founding a school of missions and evangelism, Fuller Theological Seminary. At that time, Park Street Church had 12 members studying at Princeton Theological Seminary. They reported that authoritative scripture was not taught at Princeton, and they felt the effect of it upon their own faith. We needed a highly academic theological institution founded upon infallible scripture. After discussion and seasons of prayer together, Dr. Fuller agreed to furnish the funds if I would direct the seminary. Dr. Linzel, a founding faculty member, quotes the original creedal position of Fuller on scripture, which unqualifiedly stated biblical inerrancy. In the conferences of the World Evangelical Fellowship, it became evident that there were two views of scripture held by evangelicals. When this bifurcation began to manifest itself, I called an International Council of Evangelical Scholars to meet at Gordon College in Wenham, Massachusetts from June 20th to 29th, 1966 to discuss the issue of the inspiration and authority of Scripture. More than 50 men came from various parts of the world for this discussion. A clear position did not eventuate from the conference, but rather the same lines of division were evident. In 1955, at the suggestion of Billy Graham, a group of us met first at Bass Rocks, Massachusetts, and then in New York, to launch a magazine which would defend the evangelical faith on an intellectual level. The basic premise was our adoption of an inerrant scripture. Christianity Today of which Dr. Linzel is editor, contributed to the evangelical theological revival through its faithfulness to this view of scripture. Neo-evangelicalism was born in 1948 in connection with a convocation address which I gave in the Civic Auditorium in Pasadena. While reaffirming the theological view of fundamentalism, this address repudiated its ecclesiology and its social theory. The ringing call for a repudiation of separatism and the summons to social involvement received a hearty response from many evangelicals. The name caught on in spokesmen such as Drs. Harold Linzel, Carl F. H. Henry, Edward Carnell, and Gleason Archer supported this viewpoint. We had no intention of launching a movement, but found that the emphasis attracted widespread support and exercised great influence. Neo-evangelicalism differed from modernism in its acceptance of the supernatural and its emphasis on the fundamental doctrines of scripture. It differed from neo-orthodoxy in its emphasis upon the written word as inerrant, over against the word of God which was above and different from the scripture, but was manifested in scripture. It differed from fundamentalism in its repudiation of separatism, and its determination to engage itself in the theological dialogue of the day. It had a new emphasis upon the application of the gospel to the sociological, political, and economic areas of life. Neo-evangelicals emphasized the restatement of Christian theology in accordance with the need of the times, the re-engagement in the theological debate, 
the recapture of denominational leadership, and the re-examination of theological problems, such as the antiquity of man, the universality of the flood, God's method of creation, and others. Because no individual carried the banner for the new evangelicalism, and no one developed a theology or a definitive position, many younger evangelicals joined the movement and claimed the name, but did not confess the doctrinal position of orthodoxy. This brought neo-evangelicalism into criticism, and often, both unwisely and unfairly, transferred these criticisms to the original leaders of the movement. Dr. Linzel mentions that acceptance of inerrancy is the watershed of modern theological controversy. He is right in declaring that the attitude we have toward the trustworthiness of Scripture determines our later position, not only on faith, but also on practice. The evidence that those who surrender the doctrine of inerrancy inevitably move away from orthodoxy is indisputable. It is apparent that those who give up an authoritative, dependable, authentic, trustworthy, and infallible scripture must ultimately yield the right to the use of the name evangelical. Dr. Linzel has done the church, and especially the evangelical cause, a great service in writing this book. The foreword was written by Harold J. Okaniga, president of the Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. The Preface I regard the subject of this book, Biblical Inerrancy, to be the most important theological topic of this age. A great battle rages about it among people called evangelicals. I did not start the battle and wish it were not essential to discuss it. The only way to avoid it would be to remain silent, and silence on this matter would be a grave sin. I have written this book largely for evangelical lay people in the pews who may not be aware of the central issues that face them, their denominations, and their institutions. Because of this, I have sought to write simply, avoiding technical language wherever possible. The book itself could be expanded almost indefinitely, for there is no end to the available material. The data I have used comprise only a small part of what I have personally collected for ten years. This is a controversial book. It has to be, but I have tried to represent matters fairly and objectively. It should be understood and reacted to in the light of the facts. We are all responsible for what we say and write. I hope that I have not misquoted or misinterpreted anyone whose words appear in this book. There is sufficient material available that makes it unnecessary to do this. In my professional life, I have been involved in a number of theological controversies regarding the question of miracles. I have repeatedly stated that the supernatural is taught in Scripture. When anti-supernaturalists try to persuade me that I am mistaken, I reply that I did not write the Bible. I only try to reflect what the Bible says. No one can make a case against the supernatural from the data of Scripture. The same idea is true with regard to the people I quote in this volume. Anyone who doesn't like what he says should not blame me for surfacing his opinions. I didn't say those things. The people I quote said them. And anything people, including myself, write is subject to scrutiny by those who read what they write. Christians everywhere should be concerned about biblical inerrancy. 
The least they should do is decide whether they believe it or not and then chart a course of action to follow up their choice. I hope that those who favor biblical inerrancy will make it known in every way possible and exert all the pressure they can to bear to see that the churches, institutions, and groups they have an interest in are committed to this viewpoint. And commitment must be accompanied by conduct in accord with the profession. I have tried to tell it as it is. My responsibility ends at that point, except in those places where my own relationships give me the opportunity to carry through on my own commitment to inerrancy. Every reader of this book has a similar responsibility to do his thing in the place or places where he or she has the same opportunity. Page 17, Chapter 1 Inerrancy, an Evangelical Problem The Basic Question Of all the doctrines connected with the Christian faith, none is more important than the one that has to do with the basis of our religious knowledge. For anyone who professes the Christian faith, the root question is, From where do I get my knowledge on which my faith is based? The answers to this question are varied, of course, but for the Christian at least it always comes full circle to the Bible. When all has been said and done, the only true and dependable source for Christianity lies in the book we call the Bible. This is the presupposition from which I start this discussion. Natural and Special Revelation Many Christians are aware of the distinction between natural revelation and special revelation. Natural revelation is God's witness to man through nature. Consequently, theologians have written massive volumes through the ages on the ontological, the teleological, and the cosmological arguments for the existence of a supreme being. But natural revelation has inbuilt limitations. It is fair to say that in general no man can come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ through natural revelation alone as much as it may bear an indirect witness to the existence of God. A sovereign God can apply salvation to whomever he wills, including infants, imbeciles, or to those who follow fully the light of conscience. Apart from a few exceptions, men need special revelation for salvation, and this they have through the medium of the Bible. I am making the claim that had there been no Bible, there would be no Christian faith today, nor for that matter would there be a faith called Judaism. I will not spend time to prove this, but only mention that other ethnic and cultic faiths would not exist either if there had been no Bible. Jehovah's Witnesses, Christian Science, Unity and Mormonism all are cults that are rooted in the Bible, even though they are false religions. Islam and Zoroastrianism, two ethnic religions, owe a great debt to the Bible too. The Reliable Guide to Religious Knowledge Since Christianity is indubitably related to and rooted in the Bible, another question follows inexorably. This is the one about which I have written this book. Simply stated, it is this. Is the Bible a reliable guide to religious knowledge? Posing the question another way, people ask, is the Bible trustworthy? There are only three possible answers to this question. 
The first is that the Bible is not at all trustworthy. If this answer is correct, then Christianity stands upon a false foundation. Anyone who professes a faith founded on a source that cannot be trusted is a fool, is naive, or is deluded. Certainly no thinking or honest person would embrace, recommend, or propagate a religion based on what he knows to be untrue. The second possible view of the reliability of the Bible is that it can be trusted as truthful in all its parts. By this I mean that the Bible is infallible or inerrant. It communicates religious truth, not religious error. But there is more. Whatever it communicates is to be trusted and can be relied upon as being true. The Bible is not a textbook on chemistry, astronomy, philosophy, or medicine. But when it speaks on matters having to do with these or any other subjects, the Bible does not lie to us. It does not contain error of any kind. Thus the Bible, if true in all its parts, cannot possibly teach that the earth is flat, that two and two make five, or that events happened at times other than we know they did. The Bible could not, if it is trustworthy, say that Julius Caesar was emperor when Jesus was crucified, or that Caesar Augustus perpetrated the sack of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. If it did these things, it then would be conveying information to us that is palpably false. The third and last possibility is that the Bible contains some truth and some error. Part of what it says can be relied upon and some of it must be regarded as false. In other words, the Bible is neither completely trustworthy nor completely false. The proportion of the material that is truthful may be greater in volume than that which is untrue, but wholly apart from the proportion of that which is truthful and of that which is in error, the Bible is a mixture of both. It makes no difference whatever that the false information may have come about due to ignorance, carelessness, or any other reason. Indeed, no one need presume that any part containing error was introduced deliberately. For the purposes of this book, it can be assumed that whatever errors there are, if there are any, came into the canon of the Bible incidentally and accidentally, not intentionally. Inerrancy, the view of the church. From the historical perspective, it can be said that for 2,000 years the Christian church has agreed that the Bible is completely trustworthy. It is infallible or inerrant. Footnote. A word needs to be said about the use of the words infallible and inerrant. There are some who try to distinguish between these words as though there is a difference. I do not know of any standard dictionary that does not use these two words interchangeably. All of them use them synonymously. Thus the synonym for infallible is inerrant and vice versa. For some strange reason, some people gag at the use of the word inerrant, but do not seem concerned about the use of the word infallible. I shall use these words interchangeably and even speak about the Bible as trustworthy, authoritative, etc. Whatever particular word I use, it is to be understood that I have in mind the view that the Bible is free from error in the whole and in the part. Of this, more shall be said later. End of footnote. The evidence for this statement will be presented later. 
But for the moment, a single quotation from a liberal New Testament scholar tells us what we need to know. We must remember that the author of this statement wrote at the height of the liberal fundamentalist controversy earlier this century. While his statement makes specific reference to fundamentalism, it goes far beyond that particular school of thought and asserts that the view of the fundamentalist is indeed the historic view that has been the view of the Christian church through the ages. Cursip Lake, an eminent New Testament scholar and a professor at the University of Chicago, said, It is a mistake often made by educated persons who happen to have but little knowledge of historical theology to suppose that fundamentalism is a new and strange form of thought. It is nothing of the kind. It is the partial and uneducated survival of a theology which was once universally held by all Christians. How many were there, for instance, in Christian churches in the 18th century who doubted the infallible inspiration of all scripture? A few, perhaps, but very few. No, the fundamentalist may be wrong. I think that he is. But it is we who have departed from the tradition, not he, and I am sorry for the fate of anyone who tries to argue with the fundamentalist on the basis of authority. The Bible and the corpus theologicum of the church is on the fundamentalist side. End of quote. The Special Need Today In this book I propose to support the historic view of an infallible Bible. To do this one thing alone might be profitable, but the exposition of this viewpoint has been attempted a number of times successfully. No substantial new information has come to the fore that warrants another book on a subject well covered by eminent divines in the last hundred years. It is needed for another reason. Fundamentalists and evangelicals, both of whom have been traditionally committed to an infallible or inerrant scripture, have long been noted for their propagation and defense of an infallible Bible. But more recently, among those who call themselves evangelicals, there has been a marked departure from the viewpoint held by them for so long. More and more organizations and individuals historically committed to an infallible scripture have been embracing and propagating the view that the Bible has errors in it. This movement away from the historical standpoint has been most noticeable among those often labeled neo-evangelicals. This change of position with respect to the infallibility of the Bible is widespread and has occurred in evangelical denominations, Christian colleges, theological seminaries, publishing houses, and learned societies. I will document this later and give specific examples. While the departure of some evangelicals away from an infallible scripture is significant, one thing needs to be said plainly. Just as it is possible for someone to affirm the full trustworthiness of the Bible and be unsaved, the devil knows that the Bible is true and the demons believe that Jesus Christ is God, so also it should not be inferred that because someone holds the opinion the Bible contains incidental errors, he cannot therefore be a Christian. Belief in an infallible scripture is not necessary to salvation. Indeed, one may never have heard of the virgin birth or know anything about millennialism and still be saved. This is not to say, for example, in the case of the virgin birth, that a truly redeemed person will deny it when he does learn about it. 
In any event, it is important to note at the outset, particularly when persons and institutions are mentioned, that what I say should not be interpreted as a judgment that these people are outside the company of the redeemed, or that the institutions are apostate. Going Beyond Incidental Error To acknowledge that a person who believes there are errors in the Bible can still be a Christian is not intended to undercut or underrate the importance of belief in an infallible Bible. The implications of the errancy view are tremendous and should be faced squarely by those who opt for it, even though they believe that by asserting this, they are honest and nothing serious is lost. Indeed, many of them feel that something is gained by admitting that the jewels of the Christian faith are found in a setting that is marred and imperfect. It would be nonsensical, of course, to suppose that all who hold that truth and error are mixed together in Scripture stop at this point. There are those who go far beyond the notion that the Bible contains incidental errors and offer disclaimers about other matters. They deny things that the Bible itself clearly affirms. For example, the Apostle John in the fourth gospel unequivocally states that the second half of the prophecy of Isaiah was written by the prophet himself. But there are some who believe there were two Isaiahs, one who wrote the first 39 chapters and another or a school of prophets who wrote the rest of the book. Some do not regard the book of Jonah as historical, although Jesus affirmed it to be. Still others hold that Second Peter was written by someone other than Peter, and in the second century A.D. long after Peter was dead. Yet the epistle itself claims to have been written by Peter, and specific incidents support that notion. Among them is the assertion that the writer was present at the transfiguration of Christ, which could not be true if the letter was written in the second century. Moreover, some promote the documentary hypothesis of the Pentateuch, which, in effect, denies the Mosaic authorship of the first five books of the Old Testament. They do this even though Jesus in the Gospels affirms the Mosaic authorship. There is a wide diversity among those who believe in a fallible Bible, and it is impossible to say that all who do so are of one mind. The best that can be said is that some who hold to errancy do not go beyond errors of science and history. This is as far as their pilgrimage has taken them to date. But there are others who have extended the principle and have rejected basic doctrines of the Christian faith deeply rooted in scripture and in the heritage of the church. Some have reached the place where it is difficult to suppose they are still in the Christian tradition. But these are not the ones to whom I am addressing myself. I am speaking about evangelicals who, for the most part, have limited their changing viewpoint to embrace only a fallible Bible at this time frame of history, or about evangelicals who have moved only slightly beyond this and have capitulated in a few other areas. I am concerned that they, and evangelicals who still believe in an infallible scripture, be made aware of what is happening why it has happened, what the prospects are in the near future for further changes, and what history teaches us about the ultimate outcome when Christians cease to believe in an infallible Bible. The Ethical Dilemma One of the problems among evangelicals who have swung from an infallible to a fallible scripture is ethical in nature. Most of them have operated within educational and ecclesiastical contexts that have been and still are governed by creeds, 
or by confessions of faith that affirm an infallible scripture. For them to function with integrity in this kind of situation is difficult. In effect, they deny what has been and still is being affirmed. In one way or another, they face the ethical dilemma of subscribing to what they no longer believe, preach, or teach. At the same time, the institutions, publishing houses, and denominations where they labor generally tell the public that their theological stand remains the same as it always has been. But the facts tell us that if this is true, their stand for an infallible Bible is not being carried out in practice. The only way to clarify the issue would be for them to change their creeds and confessions to reflect the new reality. Two illustrations will help make this clear. Fuller Theological Seminary was begun in 1947. The faculty drew up a doctrinal statement of faith that committed the institution to an infallible scripture. But changes occurred and this view was no longer held by some members of the faculty and board of trustees. For a number of years, the institution continued to affirm its loyalty to its confession publicly, while divergences from the confession were permitted privately. During this period of time, the institution went to work on a new doctrinal statement in which a commitment to an infallible Bible was scrapped. When the new statement was adopted, the Board of Trustees announced it publicly around the country and published it in the catalog of the school. For several years before the new statement was forged, and while some members of the Fuller Seminary family had ceased to believe in an infallible Bible, the institution was placed in the embarrassing situation of saying one thing to the public and another to itself. One can only feel the deepest sympathy for an institution when it gets caught up in this kind of predicament. But Fuller Seminary grappled with the problem and resolved it by changing its statement of faith to conform to the new reality. It used to profess belief in an inerrant Bible. It no longer does. It has so stated the change and delivered itself from the charge of ethical delinquency and misconduct. Unlike Fuller Seminary, there are other colleges and seminaries as well as denominations that, though they have much the same problem, as we shall see, have not changed their creeds or confessions to reflect the new reality. By and large, they have continued to give the impression that they stand on the old truth, even though change has come and the Bible no longer is regarded by some of their people as infallible. This poses a grave ethical problem that cannot be sidestepped. It puts those who no longer believe in an infallible Bible in the position of denying and actually undercutting what they claim to believe and propagate. Theoretically, when this occurs, integrity and honesty, which may well have occasioned the change of viewpoint in the first place, should cause the individual to demit the church, the institution, or even the denomination, and go to a new situation where his conscience is not compromised. But we must not overlook an additional fact. Many who hold that the Bible is fallible are deeply convinced that those who think it infallible are wrong. Rightly or wrongly, they think they are doing the Christian faith a service by staying where they are and working to delete any commitment to an infallible Bible from the creeds and confessions. They are saying, to be sure, that the length of time infallibility has been believed and taught is no necessary reason to suppose that the viewpoint is true. Therefore, they wish to deliver those who believe in it from their error. 
The decision to remain where they are and to work for this change is based on the conviction that to do so is more important than the ethical dilemma of signing statements of faith they do not actually believe. Inerrancy a watershed The battle that rages over the Bible today centers around the question of infallibility, whether the Bible is fully or partially trustworthy. I am of the opinion that this is a watershed question and must be seen as such. Thus little difference at a given point in history may seem to separate those who believe in an infallible scripture from those who do not. This is especially true at the moment when the only discernible difference between them is over purely incidental matters. Otherwise they are fully agreed on all of the other great basic doctrines of the Christian faith. They believe in the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the vicarious atonement, the physical resurrection of Christ from the dead, and his second coming. Since they believe all of these things and claim that the scriptures that teach these key doctrines are trustworthy, what is the problem? What difference does this seemingly minor concession make? This question requires an answer and it will be given. One part of the answer is the deep conviction based on past history that however small the differences may appear to be at this point, the gap will become enormous in due season and the differences will increase as other doctrines, now believed, are tossed overboard, discarded with the doctrine of infallibility. Approaching the Inerrancy Thistle I intend to open up the discussion of infallibility from a historical vantage point to show how the contemporary situation has arisen among evangelicals. In the process I hope that light, not heat, will be generated. However sincerely and however deeply I believe in infallibility, I will not inscribe a diatribe against those who do not agree with my viewpoint. I will speak to the issue ironically, not polemically. I desire a return to the historic teaching and belief of the church by those with whom I am in disagreement. I would be less than candid if I did not also state my hope that this book will help those who believe in infallibility to maintain and to propagate that belief. I trust it will help those who read it to avoid capitulating to a view I consider dangerous to the church and impossible to defend from scripture or from history. To write about infallibility has risks attached to it. No matter how softly I speak, how ironic my presentation, and however much I have love in my heart, there are some reactions I can be sure will follow. There will be those who will get angry and react bitterly. This will be especially true of institutional administrators and denominational and publishing house executives who would prefer that public attention be diverted from inerrancy. For to talk about it is to create further problems automatically, even when the executives themselves may be in harmony with the viewpoint I take. It is risky to be honest and to wash dirty linen in public before the eyes of those who are not, and probably never will be, the least bit sympathetic to evangelical theology. They may well delight in evangelicals being at odds with each other, Self-criticism among evangelicals, however, is healthy and exercises a cathartic influence nonetheless. Evangelicalism needs more of this sort of thing, but bringing the inerrancy question out in the open may also open the door for division and for possible schism. This is an important point to consider. 
No one wants division or schism, but this possibility must be weighed against another possibility, that of the purity of the church. Peace at any price is always possible. There is no place in the world where peace may not be had with the communists. All men need to do is to capitulate to their demands, and peace, their peace, will come. But peace at the price of theological purity for the church is too high a price to pay. We must by all means strive for both peace and purity. But when peace is threatened in the struggle for purity, it is a necessary risk that cannot be avoided. The failure to open up the question of infallibility would lead inexorably to some undesirable results, in my opinion. I shall argue that once infallibility is abandoned, however good the intentions of those who do it, and however good they feel their reasons for doing so, it always and ever opens the door to further departures from the faith. Once errancy enters an institution, it does not simply become one of several options. It quickly becomes the regnant view, and infallibility loses its foothold, and at last is silenced effectively. When one surveys the current scene in places where errancy has gotten a grip, it soon becomes obvious that there are few champions of inerrancy ready or willing to challenge the new reality. No doubt a case for errancy can be made in such a way that the unlearned and unsophisticated will fall for it. This is true when its advocates are personable people, articulate and smooth, warm-hearted and committed to the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. Indeed, not only does it appear not to be dangerous, it can be made to look as though it actually bulwarks orthodoxy and removes unnecessary impediments that are stumbling blocks to some who would otherwise come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Errancy produces evil consequences. I will contend that embracing a doctrine of an errant scripture will lead to disaster down the road. It will result in the loss of missionary outreach. It will quench missionary passion. It will lull congregations to sleep and undermine their belief in the full-orbed truth of the Bible. It will produce spiritual sloth and decay. It will finally lead to apostasy. No one should forget that the clearest example of this is the Unitarian Universalist denomination of which more will be said later. In turning away from Trinitarianism, this group of people turned away from the clear teaching of the Bible. Underlying their departure from orthodoxy was their disbelief in the infallibility of Scripture. In the early 19th century, the differences between the Unitarians and the Orthodox did not seem so great, but today the chasm is vast. Many Unitarians are atheists. Many are humanists. In both the first and the second humanist manifestos, the names of Unitarian clergymen are prominent. Among Unitarian Universalists, the doctrine of sin has disappeared. The gospel is not preached. No missionaries go to the ends of the earth with the good news of Christ's salvation. Nor is the Bible preached in their churches. This group is utterly and completely apostate. No other conclusion is possible. The Need to Speak Out A great battle rages today about biblical infallibility among evangelicals. To ignore the battle is perilous. To come to grips with it is necessary. To fail to speak is more than cowardice, it is sinful. 
there comes a time when Christians must not keep silent, when to do so is far worse than to speak and risk being misunderstood or disagreed with. If we Christians do not learn from history, we are bound to repeat its mistakes. In dealing with infallibility, there is one pitfall we must avoid by all means. We must not determine the rightness or wrongness of a man's position by his personal life. Surely there ought to be some correlation between what a man believes and how he lives. Yet scripture itself teaches us that it does not always work out that way. David was a man after God's own heart, but at times he was quite defective in his life. He committed adultery with Bathsheba, and he plotted the death of Uriah the Hittite, her husband. His son Solomon was a man of great wisdom, but this did not keep Solomon from turning away from God in his latter years as a direct result of his intermarriage with heathen women. A man's views should be examined for their intrinsic content or value, regardless of the kind of life he has lived. This is true for evangelicals as well as for those who no longer hold to an infallible scripture. Evangelical theology should not be judged right or wrong on the basis of those who profess it. History affords examples of people who profess to be evangelicals, but whose lives were no better, and in some cases were even worse than those of some liberals. I am not interested in trying to prove that belief in an errant scripture leads to a dissolute life. The same kind of proof could be adduced from the lifestyles of some evangelicals. This would do no more than produce a standoff. I am interested in the theological viewpoint of those who hold to an errant scripture and wish to avoid dealing in personalities. If at any point I give the appearance of sniping at any person or seem to be attacking anyone's person, it is not my announced intention. I will have to point out ethical inconsistencies on the part of those who live under creeds and confessions they cannot fully endorse. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, 
whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.